Chapter Two of The Protector by Harold Bindless. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Protector by Harold Bindless. Chapter Two A Breeze of Wind. There were signs of a change in the weather when Vane walked down to the wharf with his passengers, for a cold wind which had sprung up struck an eerie sighing from the somber firs and sent the white mists streaming along the hillside. There was a watery moon in the sky, and on reaching the end of the wharf, Vane fancied that the singer hesitated. But the elder woman laid her hand upon the girl's arm reassuringly, and she got into the canoe. In a few minutes Vane ran the craft alongside the sloop and saw the amazement in Carroll's face by the glow from the cabin's skylight. He, however, fancied that his comrade would rise to the occasion, and he handed his guests up. "'My partner, Carroll, Mrs. Marvin and her daughter, Miss Kitty Blake. You have seen them already,' he said. "'They're coming down with us to catch the steamer.' Carroll bowed, and Vane, who thrust back the cabin slide, motioned the others below. The place was brightly lighted by a nickeled lamp, though it was scarcely four feet high, and the centerboard trunk occupied the middle of it. A wide, cushioned locker ran along each side, a foot above the floor, and a swing table, fixed above the trunk, filled up most of the space between. There was no cloth upon the table, but it was invitingly laid out with canned fruit, coffee, hot flapjacks, and a big lake trout. "'You must help yourselves while we get sail upon the boat,' said Vane. "'The saloon's at your disposal. My partner and I have the forecastle. You will notice there are blankets yonder, and as we'll have smooth water most of the way, you should get some sleep.' He withdrew, closing the slide, and went forward with Carroll to shorten in the cable. But when they stopped beside the bits, his companion broke into a soft laugh. "'Is there anything to amuse you?' Vane asked curtly. "'Well,' said Carroll, with an air of reflection, "'it strikes me you're making a rather unconventional use of your new prosperity.' and it might be prudent to consider how your friends in Vancouver may regard the adventure. Vane sat down upon the bits and took out his pipe. "'One trouble in talking to you is that I never know whether you're in earnest or not. You trot out your cold-blooded worldly wisdom, and then you grin at it.' "'I think that's the only philosophic attitude,' replied Carroll. It's possible to grow furiously indignant with the restraints stereotyped people lay on one, but on the whole it's wiser to bow to them and chuckle. After all, they've some foundation. Vane looked up at him sharply. You've been right in the advice you have given me more than once. You seem to know how prosperous and what you call stereotyped folks look at things but you've never explained where you got the knowledge. That, said Carroll, is quite another matter. Anyway, continued Vane, 
There's one remark of yours I'd like to answer. You would, no doubt, consider I made a legitimate use of my money when I entertained that crowd of city people, some of whom would have plundered me if they could have managed it, in Vancouver. I didn't grudge it, but I was a little astonished when I saw the wine and cigar bill. It struck me that the best of them scarcely noticed what they got. I think they'd been up against it at one time, as we have. And it would have done the rest of the guzzlers good if they'd had to work all day with a shovel on pork and flapjacks. But we'll let that go. What have you and I done that we should swill in champagne, while a girl with a face like that one below, and a child who dances like a fairy, haven't enough to eat? You know what I paid for the last cigars. What confounded hogs we are. Carol laughed outright. There was not an ounce of superfluous flesh upon his comrade, who was hardened and toughened by determined labor, and the term hog appeared singularly inappropriate. Well, said Carol, you'll no doubt get used to the new conditions by and by, and in regard to your latest exploit, there's a motto on your insignia of the garter which might meet the case. But hadn't we better heave her over her anchor? They seized the chain, and as it ran below, a sharp musical rattle rang out, for the hollow hull flung back the metallic clinking like a sounding board. When the cable was short up, they grasped the halyards, and the big gaff mainsail rose flapping up the mast. They set it and turned to the headsails, for, though strictly speaking, a sloop only carries one, the term is loosely applied in places, and, as Vane had changed her rig, there were two of them. "'It's a fair wind, and I expect we'll find more weight in it lower down,' said Carroll. We'll let the staysail lie and run her with the jib. They set the jib and broke out the anchor. Vane took the helm, and the sloop, slanting over her until her deck on one side dipped close to the frothing brine, drove away into the darkness. The lights of the settlement faded among the trees, and when Carol coming aft flung a strip of canvas over the skylight, his comrade could see the black hills and climbing firs on both sides slip by. Sliding vapors streaked them, a crisp splashing sound made by the curling ripples followed the vessel. The canoe surged along noisily astern, and the frothing and gurgling grew louder at the bows. They were running down one of the deep, forest-shrouded inlets which, resembling the Norwegian fjords, pierce the Pacific littoral of Canada. "'I wonder how the wind is outside,' Vane said. Carol looked round and saw the white mists stream athwart the pines on a promontory they were skirting. "'That's more than I can tell. In these troughs among the hills it either blows straight up or directly down, and I dare say we'll find it different when we reach the sound.' One thing's certain, there's some weight in it now. Vane nodded agreement, though an idea that troubled him crept into his mind. 
I understand the steamboat skipper will run into land some siwash he's bringing down. It will be awkward in the dark if the wind's on shore. Carroll made no comment, and they drove on, until, as they swept round the point, the sloop, slanting sharply, dipped her lee rail in the froth. "'We'll have to tie down a reef,' he said. Vane told him to take the tiller, and scrambling forward, rapped upon the cabin side, which he flung back. Mrs. Marvin lay upon the leeward locker with a blanket across her, and the little girl at her feet. Miss Blake sat on the weather one with a book in her hand. "'We're going to take some sail off the boat,' he said. "'You needn't be disturbed by the noise.' "'When do you expect to meet the steamer?' Miss Blake inquired. "'Not for two or three hours, anyway,' Vane answered, with a hint of uncertainty in his voice. Then, as he fancied the girl had noticed it, he closed the slide. "'Down helm,' he said to Carroll, and there was a banging and thrashing of canvas as the sloop came up into the wind. They held her there, with the jib aback, while they hauled the canoe on board, which was not an easy task, and then with difficulty hove down a reef in the mainsail. It was heavy work, because there was nobody at the helm, and the craft falling off once or twice as they leaned out upon the boom, with toes on her depressed lee rail, threatened to hurl them into the frothing water. Neither of them were trained sailors, but on that coast with its inlets and sounds and rivers the wanderer learns to handle sail and paddle and canoe pole. They finished their task, and when Vane seized the helm, Carroll sat down under the shelter of the combing, out of the flying spray. "'We'll probably have some trouble putting your friends on board the steamer, even if she runs in,' he remarked. What are you going to do if there's no sign of her? It's a question I've been shirking for the last half hour, Vane confessed. I'd like to point out that it would be very slow work beating back up this inlet, and if we did so, there isn't a stage across the island for several days. No doubt you remember you have to see that contractor on Thursday, and there's the director's meeting. "'It's uncommonly awkward,' Vane answered dubiously. Carroll laughed. "'It strikes me your guests will have to stay where they are, whether they like it or not. But there's one consolation. If this wind is from the northwest, which is most likely, it will be a fast run to Victoria. And now I'll try to get some sleep.' He disappeared down a scuttle forward leaving Vane somewhat disturbed in mind. He had merely contemplated taking his guests for a few hours' run, but to have them on board for, perhaps, several days was a very different thing. Besides, he was far from sure that they would understand the necessity for the latter, in which case the situation might become difficult. In the meanwhile the sloop drove on, until at last, towards morning, the beach fell back on each hand, and she met the long swell tumbling in from the Pacific. 
the wind was from the northwest and blowing moderately hard. There was no light yet in the sky above the black heights to the east of him, and the swell grew higher and steeper, breaking white here and there. The sloop plunged over it wildly, hurling the spray aloft, and it cost him a determined effort to haul his sheets in as the wind drew ahead. Shortly afterwards the beach faded altogether on one hand, and he saw that the sea was piled up into foaming ridges. It seemed most improbable that the steamer would run in to land her Indian passengers, and he drove the sloop on with showers of stinging brine beating into her wet canvas and whirling about him. By and by he noticed that a stream of smoke was pouring from the short funnel of the stove, and soon afterwards the cabin slide opened. Miss Blake crept out and stood up in the well, gazing forward while she clutched the combing. Day was now breaking, and Vane could see that her thin dress was blown flat against her. There was something graceful in her pose and it struck him that she had a very pretty slender figure. "'Where's the steamer?' she asked. It was a question Vane had dreaded, but he answered it honestly. "'I can't tell you. It's very likely that she has gone straight on to Victoria.' He read suspicion in her suddenly hardening face. "'You expected this when you asked us to come on board,' she cried. "'No,' said Vane, whose face grew hot. "'On my honor, I did nothing of the kind. "'There was only a moderate breeze when we left, "'and when it freshened enough to make it unlikely "'that the steamer would run in, "'I was as vexed as you seem to be. "'As it happened, I couldn't go back. "'I must get on to Victoria as soon as possible.' "'She looked at him searchingly. "'Then what are we to do?' she asked. There was distress in the cry, but Vane answered it in his most matter-of-fact tone. "'So far as I can see, you can only reconcile yourself to staying on board. We'll have a fresh fair wind for Victoria, once we're round the next head, and with luck we ought to get there late tonight.' "'You're sure you'll be there, then?' "'I'm sorry I can't even promise that. It depends upon the weather,' he replied. "'But you mustn't stand up in the spray. You're getting wet through.' She still clung to the combing. But he fancied that her misgivings were vanishing, and he spoke again. "'How are Mrs. Marvin and the little girl? I see you have lighted the stove.' The girl sat down, shivering in the partial shelter of the combing, and at last a gleam of amusement, which he thought was partly compassionate, shone in her eyes. "'I'm afraid they're far from well. That was why I lighted the fire. I wanted to make them some tea. I thought you wouldn't mind.' Vane smiled. "'Everything's at your service. Go and get your breakfast.' and put on a coat you'll find below if you come out again." She disappeared, and Vane felt relieved. Though the explanation had proved less difficult than he had anticipated, 
he was glad that it was over. Half an hour later she appeared again, carrying a loaded tray, and he wondered at the ease of her movements, for the sloop was plunging viciously. "'I've brought you some breakfast. You've been up all night,' she said. Vane laughed. "'As I can only take one hand from the helm, you will have to cut up the bread and canned stuff for me. Draw that box out and sit down beneath the combing if you mean to stay.' She did as he told her. The well was some four feet long, and the bottom of it about half that distance below the level of the deck. As the result of this, she sat close to his feet while he balanced himself on the combing, gripping the tiller. He noticed that she had brought an oilskin jacket with her. "'Hadn't you better put this on first? There's a good deal of spray,' she said. Vane struggled into the jacket with some difficulty, and she smiled as she handed him up a slice of bread and canned meat. "'I suppose,' she said, "'you can only manage one piece at once?' "'Thank you. That's about as much as you could expect one to be capable of, even allowing for the bushman's appetite. I'm surprised to see you looking so fresh.' "'Oh,' said the girl, I used to go out with the mackerel boats at home. We lived at the ferry. It was a mile across the lock, and with the wind westerly the sea worked in." "'The lock?' said Vane. "'I told Carol you were from the Green Isle.' It struck him that this was perhaps imprudent, since it implied that they had been discussing her. But, on the other hand, he thought the candor of the statement was in his favor. Then he added, "'Have you been long out here?' Her face grew wistful. Four years,' she answered. "'I came out with Larry. He's my brother. He was a forester at home, and he took small contracts for clearing land. Then he married, and I left him.' Vane made a sign of comprehension. "'I see. Where's Larry now?' "'He went to Oregon. There was no answer to my last letter. I've lost sight of him.' "'And you go about with Mrs. Marvin? Is her husband alive?' Sudden anger flared up in the girl's blue eyes, though he knew it was not directed against him. "'Yes.' she said. It's a pity he is. Men of his kind always seem to live. It occurred to Vane that Miss Blake, who had evidently a spice of temper, could be a staunch partisan, and he also noticed that now he had inspired her with some degree of trust in himself, her conversation was marked by an ingenious candor. For all that, she changed the subject. "'Another piece, or some tea?' she asked. "'Tea first, said Vane, and they both laughed when she afterwards handed him a double slice of bread. "'These sandwiches strike me as unusually nice,' he informed her. "'It's exceptionally good tea, too.' The blue eyes gleamed with amusement. "'You have been in the cold all night, 
but I was once in a restaurant. She watched the effect of this statement on him. You know, I really can't sing. I was never taught, anyway, though there were some of the settlements where we did rather well. Vane hummed a few bars of a song. I don't suppose you realize what one ballad of yours has done. I'd almost forgotten the old country, but the night I heard you, I felt I must go back and see it again. What's more, Carol and I are going shortly. It's your doing. This was a matter of fact, but Kitty Blake had produced a deeper effect on him, although he was not aware of it yet. "'It's a shame to keep you handing me things to eat,' he added disconnectedly. "'Still, I'd like another piece.' She smiled, delighted, as she passed the food to him. "'You can't help yourself and steer the boat. Besides, after the restaurant, I don't mind waiting on you.' Vane made no comment, but he watched her with satisfaction while he ate, and as one result of it the sloop plunged heavily into the frothing sea. There was no sign of the others, and they were alone on the waste of tumbling water in the early dawn. The girl was pretty, and there was a pleasing daintiness about her. She belonged to the people, there was no doubt of that. But then Vane had a strong faith in the people, native-born and adopted, of the Pacific Slope, it was from them he had received the greatest kindnesses he could remember. They were cheerful optimists, indomitable grapplers with forest and flood, who did almost incredible things with axe and saw and giant powder. They lived in lonely ranch houses, tents, and rudely flung up shacks, driving the new roads along the range side, risking life and limb in wildcat adits. They were quick to laughter and reckless in hospitality. Then with an effort he brushed the hazy thoughts away. Kitty Blake was merely a guest of his. In another day he would land her in Victoria, and that would be the end of it. He was assuring himself of this when Carol crawled up through the scuttle forward and came aft to join them. In spite of his prudent reflections, Vane was by no means certain that he was pleased to see him. End of chapter 2 Recording by Roger Moline